I'm sad today because uh, last week I shared with you uh, my team was playing in an NFC championship game. And uh, Aaron's, Aaron's knife wasn't sharp enough. The goat lived. The goat lived. Um, yes, we, there are a few uh, that out here that, that are very excited about that. But I have to say that, you know, football, uh, football is one thing of life. And I can get past that. You know, this Sundays are the Super Bowl every week for us. Really? We can see lives change. That's what really matters. Um, and uh, I was lit reading an article by the Packers quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, because I've always been fascinated with him. He grew up in the small town of Chico, California, which is where my daughter and son-in-law lived right after they got married. Uh, they went to Chico State. They, they went to the church where Aaron Rodgers' family went to. I knew that he grew up in that church, but then it always um, concerned me that I'd never heard much about his faith as a football player. And I found out um, after listening to a podcast that he, um, where he spoke a year ago to his now uh, ex-girlfriend, Danica Patrick, he shared the, the transition of his belief system. And I want to share with you what he said in that interview. He said, um, the, you know, the youth group was good. He, he enjoyed going down to Mexico and building homes for the poor, uh, but he's changed since then. He said, I had some good friendships along the way that helped me to figure out exactly what I wanted to believe in. Ultimately, it was that rules and regulations and binary systems don't resonate with me. I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipotent, or omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this? He says what clinched it for him was this whole binary approach that some people are saved, some are not, some are enlightened, some are heathen, some are going to heaven, others are going to hell. And then he says, religion is a crutch. It makes people feel better about themselves. So he's chosen a path that makes him feel better about himself. People piled on that. I mean, the criticisms of Christianity. That's why I left the church too. They're, they're so archaic and they're irrelevant. They haven't, uh, they don't speak to the times today. You know, the Bible's outdated. Um, it's impractical. Christians are judgmental and divisive and intolerant. And, you know, all these negative things that people expressed about the Christian faith. Now, there were a few others in there who said, I disagree. That's not been my experience. That's not how I, I even perceive things. But if you take all the religions of the world and, and how they get developed or, or how they come about is they try to solve mankind's deepest issues. So some would say that our biggest problem is to overcome ignorance. We need to overcome our ignorance. We need to be enlightened. We need to see the truth. Because if, if we had our eyes open and we understood the truth, we'd say like, oh, that's how I'm supposed to live. That's what I'm supposed to be like. That's how everything works out. And life would go much smoother. A lot of Eastern religions um, kind of preach that kind of message that we need to overcome ignorance. Buddhism, for example, you know, you need to be enlightened. The New Age movement, you know, you need to see things the way the way reality is. There are other groups who say that the real problem is that we need to. Um, there needs to be increased compliance, meaning we need to be more devoted to those rules and regulations. We need just to get more serious about it. We need to dig in. We need to hunker down. We need to, you know, fast and pray and pray the prayers and do the rituals and celebrate the feasts and observe the sacraments. And so a lot of religions are based on this system of doing the right things, of, of prayers at certain times, of, of festivals at certain times. Uh, even within Christianity, uh, some forms of Catholicism are all about keep the sacraments, say the right prayers. If you do all those things, the gods will give you favor. But Christianity is different than all that. Christianity is, is just basically different because both these other systems are dependent upon what you do. 
If you seek for the truth, if you get more serious about your faith, you can be saved. Christianity presents a gospel that says there's nothing you can do to be saved. That what needs to be done has been done by somebody else. And you trust in that someone else who did the thing that you couldn't do, which is what Jesus has done for us. It, it is not overcoming our ignorance. It's not increasing our compliance. It's walking in dependence. It's walking in dependence on God. It's recognize that everything we have, everything we are, everything we'll ever be is dependent upon God. And he graciously offers it to us if we respond in faith. And so in this first episode that we watched this week, and if you hadn't watched, I just encourage you, watch this little short, like 18-minute video called The Shepherd, The Shepherd. It really spawned this whole series called The Chosen. But in this um, message, there are a handful of shepherds who come into town to market their sheep. Now, sheep, um, sheep were just a big part of the economy in biblical times. Actually, all over the, the ancient Near East for generations, sheep were very important for food, whether it be milk or meat, uh, for clothing from their skin or from their wool. Um, the horns were used for certain things. Their tails, I didn't realize this, the tail of, of certain sheep contained a, a, a certain kind of fat that was great for cooking. But for the religious person, the, the Jewish person, there was another reason they raised lambs, and that was for sacrifices in the temple. Hundreds, sometimes thousands of sacrifices um, of these lambs would be done annually. And we'll get into a little bit later why that was so critical. And it's in this place of Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary will come to, have the, to give their baby his birth. They're coming because a census has been declared and they must return to their town of ancestry. Well, Joseph's from the um, family of David and he, his family, David's family, was from Bethlehem. So Joseph has to go to Bethlehem to be counted in the census and to pay taxes. And Mary must be, you know, eight and a half, nine months pregnant at that time this long journey on donkey to get to Bethlehem. And so we, we read a passage that we normally read at Christmas, but we're reading it today. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger." This is the place of Christ's birth, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the, the city or the little town, it was a very small place, that was prophesied by Micah to be a very special place. He says, you may, you may consider yourself the lowest of cities. You may consider yourself very insignificant, but, but out of you will come one who will be the ruler of Israel. They knew their king would be coming out of Bethlehem. Now, what was unique about Bethlehem, and history says that this region was was. was a great place for shepherds to raise the sheep for the sacrifices in Jerusalem at the temple. And so the shepherds that may have been there that night that, that were brought to the birthplace of Christ may very well have been shepherds whose primary job was to raise these sheep. Now, these sheep weren't ordinary sheep. They had to be very cared for. They had to be spotless without deformity or blemish. 
because they were meant to be a perfect sacrifice. And so they required great care uh, and observation of of their um, growing up so they didn't become bruised and didn't become injured and didn't become deformed. And so, so they knew that when this Messiah came, he would be the ultimate sacrifice. And Joseph and Mary know that Jesus is coming to do this because when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, an angel came to talk to him and the angel said to Joseph, and you will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And in that one statement, he identifies the great problem and God's solution for the great problem. See, all religion seeks to solve a problem and the, and the problem isn't that we don't know enough and the, the problem isn't that, that our Our will just has to be stronger and we need to be more obedient. Our problem is this thing called sin. What do we do with it? What do we do with sin? The problem is sin. Jesus came to save us from what? From sin. It's bigger than we can even handle. If it was just some little glitch that we occasionally did, it would be kind of easy to solve. The problem is it has been a perpetual problem for mankind from the beginning of creation. Everybody struggles with this perpetually. We fight ourselves on this issue of sin. It's a big problem for us because we're all guilty, and because of our guilt, we deserve death. There's a few different words the Bible uses to describe sin. One of them is is a term that means to miss the mark, to not measure up. It'd be like having a target, and you, you never quite hit the bullseye. You're always hitting around the edges. And the Bible says that, that we fall short of the glory of God, you know, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of God's expectations of us, of what God's standard is for us. We are made in his image. God God doesn't want us to act like animals. He wants us to act as a higher creation. He wants us to display that, that God, his nature is within us. And we're called to live a life of greater standards. There's also a word that describes sin as being kind of a transgression or or a violation of a law. Uh, We might call it a trespass. You're, You're going where you shouldn't be going. God has laws that he's established for us that honor him and protect us. We may not think they protect us. It's like when you drive the speed limit, it says 30, you go, oh, man, it's, I could go 40 here and be safe. And no, that's 30 for a reason. God said, I gave you these rules for a reason. It's not just, it's not just to make me uh, have power over you. It's because it's what's good for you. So the, the laws in Scripture, the rules in Scripture are to help us. And the problem is, that we don't always like those rules and sometimes we're not even aware of, of all of them. And so we kind of say, God, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that big of a deal. A friend of ours recently received a bill in the mail for $28 uh, because she had driven on a toll road up in Denver going to the airport and didn't know that you had to pay. So she went to the airport, found out, man, not much traffic on this road. And man, it's great. And there's no toll booths. Awesome. Must be free. So she goes there, drops her friend off, comes back that way. A few weeks later, gets a spill in the mail because what, what she didn't know was there's a camera scanning your license plate. There are no toll, toll booths. If you don't have a pass, you get charged based on your registration. And, and she just didn't know, even though it says toll road. Uh, many of us feel that, that God owes us an apology that, you know, we could say, God, I didn't know that. In fact, we, we use it a lot for other people saying, how can you hold people in another place who've never read the Bible, never heard about Jesus, how can we hold them responsible for their sins when they don't even know? God, you're going to owe them an apology because ignorance is bliss. Because they don't know, they should be given a free pass. But you know, if you're going to drive a car, you need to know the rules of the road. That's, up, that's on you. 
You're going to live life? You need to roll, know the rules of life. Now, now, God has already put up on a big billboard, which we call the sunrise and the sunset and the solar system and the mountains and the birds and the animals. He says, in all creation, it's made known that I am here. Heavens declare the glory of God. Ever since the creation, my power and divine nature have been seen, so people are without excuse. They can't say they don't know there's a God. They just look up and go, where did all this come from? There's a God. Therefore, it's on us to find out who that God is. It's on us to, to at least honor that God, worship that God. But the problem is we don't. The problem is we say, well, uh, he, he's going to be responsible, not me, because he didn't make everything real crystal clear for me. And if ignorance were the answer, like if ignorance were a better place, and I would say, let's not send missionaries out. Because if ignorance gives you a free pass, it's better that everyone stay ignorant than everybody gets into heaven. But you know what? Ignorance can be very dangerous. Think about it. I don't want to go to the doctor and have my blood work done because it may show that I have a problem with my cholesterol or, you know, my diabetes or I may have cancer. I don't want to know that. So I'd rather not know as if not knowing makes it better. You know, some of us say, like, I don't want to see a marriage counselor because he may point out that we have problems. I'd rather not know that because ignorance is bliss. I think we're doing just fine. It's, honey, it's, no, it's a real problem. You can't address it if you don't know what's there. And just by ignoring it doesn't make it go away. So you may say, like, I don't know what God expects of me. And I don't know what all his, you know, his rules are. And, and I don't know about Jesus, but, but you know, that's on him, not me. No, he says, you, you have the opportunity. That's on you. I've given you life. I've given you the opportunity. Ignorance is not bliss. Sin is a problem. It's a big problem. It's a universal problem. We all have sinned. Remember that verse? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have done that. It says in, in Isaiah chapter 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone, every one of us, to his own way. We've veered off. We've chosen to do it our way. And what it does is it takes us away from God. It becomes a very personal issue because it, it severs our relationship with God. You know, in the Old Testament, God continually tried to convince people that he was a king worthy of being followed. God never wanted them to desire a human king. He says, I'll be your king. I rescued you from Egypt. I provided for you in the desert. I've given you a, an abundance in the promised land. I'm a good and gracious God. Walk with me. Um, how about we get a king like the Egyptians have? How about a king like those Canaanite nations? That dude looks pretty good. Uh, can we have one of those? He says, really? Really? I'm not good enough? Okay. You ask for a king, you'll get a king. Just be prepared. And they gave, God gave him Saul. And every, the history of all these kings in the Old Testament was... They're men. They're faulty men. They're sinners. They're not God. And you've, you've traded God from, to, on the throne of your life for these earthly kings to follow, and they're not worth following. God wants to be the king. But here's a description of, of how mankind went. It's, it's actually spoken twice in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that was an apt description of then, but don't you think we could write that now? Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Hey, I'm going to be the standard of what's right for me. I'm going to determine how I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to determine what, how I should live my life. And God, you need to listen to me. You really do. Because I'm the boss now, not you. I mean, it's a dangerous place to be. And here's the consequence of it. It not, become, it not only becomes a personal problem, it becomes a fatal problem. It says in Isaiah, 
Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It drives a wedge. You can no longer be in God's presence, just like Adam and Eve, because you've chosen sin over God. When we think we can determine what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, we put ourselves on the throne. It's the throne where God needs to sit. And that's why the conclusion of all this is the wages of sin is death. You want to know what we earn for sin? It's death. Eternal, physical, spiritual separation from God. And we can try to blame Adam. You know, it's Adam's problem. He started it all. And he did. But he started it all. But he's not, he's not responsible for my sin. God's not responsible for my sin. The devil's not even responsible for my sin. Do you know who's responsible for my sin? Me. And you're responsible for your sin. Book of James, it says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We choose to follow temptation. Temptation pulls us in, separates from, from God. We continue to walk that way. We are separated from God for eternity. And so if we're going to be saved, you've got to know what you're being saved from. And what we're being saved from is this problem that the Bible says is sin. But what scares me today is so many people today are growing up in a culture that, that's trying to define sin as something very different. It, it's, I'm finding people are arguing with God, saying, I, I don't like what the Bible says, and, and I don't think the Bible means what it says, because I think it means this. And I think how I'm living is just fine and dandy. And that God ought to accept the way I'm living because, after all, I'm the boss. And all that is pride. It's a very dangerous place to be. God says it over and over in Scripture, the proud will be humbled and the humble will be lifted up. And we, I just warning you, it's a dangerous place to, to try to defend sin. I mean, we, have, we even live in a culture that will have parades to celebrate sin. Think how God looks at that, how God looks at our culture when we do that. We need to be in a place where we say, God, what you say is good is good. What you say is evil is evil. And I will conform my life to what you say is right and wrong. I like what C.S. Lewis did. C.S. Lewis was an atheist until he began to really um, think philosophically through the claims of Christianity. And in his book, Mere Christianity, which is an excellent little book, he says this. He says, in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not even know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. We have to be humble enough to say, God, I'm a sinner. Remember how Paul, when he wrote a letter to Timothy, said, um, this is a trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I'm about the worst there could be. It's this humility saying, God, I don't deserve what you have to give. I am a sinner. I've got a problem, and I need your help. Jesus came to save us from our sins. But the problem is actually bigger for God. It's even bigger for God than for us. And here's why. Because God is both just and loving. It's a conflict of his justice and love. These are equally true attributes of God. He is holy. He is perfect. He's always right. He's correct. His laws are good. He upholds them. He is the judge. 
And so when God gives his laws, he expects that we would conform our lives to them. And think about it. Um, they're not the 10 suggestions. They're the 10 commandments. And he says to honor our father and mother. And he says, don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Um, be faithful to your spouse. Don't commit adultery. And yet we look at those things and go, uh, you don't know my parents. And you know what? Lying a little bit got me what I wanted. Got me out of that trouble. And you know what? Everyone needs a little fun outside their marriage once in a while. Just keeps me sane. And, and we compromise those things. We don't realize that those are the things that are actually destroying life right before our eyes. And this is being unfaithful to the one who's promised himself to be our king and ruler. Faithfulness. What does God ask of us? That we'd be faithful to him. If sin is unfaithfulness, can you imagine um, telling your boss at work, hey, I'm going to be disloyal to you just a little bit on my, on my job. Is that okay? It's okay. I'm just a little bit un, unfaithful to the company. You're going to be good with that. Try this with your spouse. Hey, honey, Nobody's perfect. I'm going to be unfaithful. I know that's just, that's just part of who I am. I'm going to be unfaithful to you maybe once or twice a day, but that's it. No big deal. No big deal. You call me from the hospital and let me know how that's gone, okay? <laughs> Doesn't fly with your mate, does it? Why do we think it flies with God? Why do we think we can tell God, God, I'm going to be a little unfaithful to you, but, but you, you need to be faithful to me. You need to still love me. Really? God owes it to us who've been incredibly unfaithful again and again and again to him? David, David got it right when he says in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? God, if you're keeping a record of my sins, I'm doomed. Oh my goodness. Ezekiel says that soul, the soul who sins, that's the one that will die. It will die. We deserve to die because of our sins. That's what it's like if God is only our judge. You know what? I, I love the fact that the Bible conveys the love of Jesus to us. And I think sometimes we forget that, that it all begins with justice. And that's why in Proverbs, the very first chapter, we, we read this recently in our Bible reading, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to know the truth about God, you better come humbly, respecting who he is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Now, that's not the end. It's the beginning. And we may say, well, I don't like that. I don't like the fear stuff because I, I just love Jesus and who Jesus is. Listen to what Jesus said. This is in the Gospel of Matthew. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's, the, that's Jesus speaking about his father. He knows that God is a lawgiver and that he's judge, but he also knows that God is a father and a savior. He wants love to get the final word. That's why he constantly is looking at people who are wrapped up in sin and says, I want to bring you back. I want to restore you. I want to redeem you. I want to welcome you back in. If, if all God cared about was the law, he would do like the ark with Noah. He would wipe people from the face of the earth and start over. But he doesn't. He says, you know, I'm going to try everything I can. I'm going to keep the door open for you to come home. I'm going to keep a light on for you. I want to bring you back in. Why? Because not only am I just, but I'm loving. I'm loving. I'm a loving father. See, in the book of Jeremiah, he says to a, a people who've constantly been unfaithful to him, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. My love for you never fails, never ends. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. But here's the problem. Love and, love and justice don't, like, fit together well. It's like oil and water. Because justice means you get what you deserve, 
And love and grace means you don't get what you deserve. So which way do you want it? Do you want to get what you deserve? Do you want God to be fair with you? Or do you want God to be gracious to you and give you what you don't deserve? You can't have both. Which is it? We're all going to land on one side or the other. Either we're, we're going to get what we deserve or we're going to get something that we don't deserve. That is called grace. That's why this is such a huge problem for God. How does God uphold his law and be just and at the same time love the sinner who's been unfaithful? And here's the solution. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. God so loved this world that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. God brought justice upon his son so that we could experience the love of God. And this was the the preparation of all the Old Testament rituals, the sacrifices, where God would tell his people that they would offer, you know, bulls and goats and sheep as sacrifices and implying that these animals will suffer the consequence for your sins. You deserve to die, but I'm willing to take your sins and symbolically transfer them to that animal so that that animal will give its life so you could continue to live. It was an object lesson. It was all through their history for hundreds and hundreds of years, constantly reminding the people that the real problem is not we don't know enough or we're just not committed enough. It's the fact that we keep sinning. And sin is an awful thing. And it requires someone or something to die. And God says, I'm going to bring a greater uh, sacrifice down the road that'll actually truly take away your sins. But just be reminded, this is a very serious issue. When John the Baptist met Jesus, when Jesus came to get baptized, he, he shouted out, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. What was he meaning? Well, this is the sacrifice. The Lamb. He knew why Jesus had come. He, he knew that Jesus would live this perfect life, that he would be the spotless, the blemish-free human being. And because of that, other people's guilt could be transferred to him. In Isaiah 53, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We read that earlier. We have all turned everyone to his own way. But then it adds this, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God took our sin and put it on Jesus. He suffered for us. All the Old Testament um, prophets look forward to that event, and all the New Testament writers look back to that event, what Jesus did on the cross. 1 John 4 says, This is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what is that? Big word, propitiation. We don't use that word in our English language, but it means a gift that satisfies wrath. It means that we deserve judgment because of our sins, and, and God has righteous anger toward us. Now, people don't like to know that God is, has a righteous anger, but he does. It's not a temper tantrum. It's not like God's flying off the handle. But he's looked at this constant rebellion and says, that needs to be punished. That needs to be judged. And Jesus offered himself as a gift that absorbed God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to take it. We wouldn't have to receive that wrath. Lately, our, our newscasters and political people have been talking about treason and what that is and what's the consequences for it. You know, in, in 1790, when our Congress established uh, the Crimes Act, treason was such a serious crime that it was punishable by death. And we've, we've, we've modified it 
in a lot of cases nowadays, but then it was punishable by death. It's as if our founders said, there's nothing greater, nothing more offensive to us as leaders of this country to know that an American citizen would turn their back on the country and betray the leaders. They, they need to go. Now, if that was humans in a country, think about God when we've committed spiritual treason. When God says, you are part of my earthly family and you turn your back against me. What do we expect? God just ignore it? God just to let it pass by? No, it's punishable by death. But here's what God did, Romans 3. Here's how it all comes together. Here's why Jesus died on the cross. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just, meaning he's keeping his laws. He's fulfilling what needs to be done. The law will be upheld, but he's the justifier, meaning he's forgiving, forgiving people who've trusted in Jesus. He's just and the justifier. I mean, we understand justice a little bit, but I don't think we understand it to the degree that God does. I mean, think about when you've been offended, when you've been hurt, how many times have we said, I'll never forget that? Mm. I'm, I'm never letting you off the hook for that. No, that was too much. You know, we're like that because we're human. How in the world do we think God can say, you know what? I'm going to forgive it and act as if it didn't happen. I'm going to remember that sin no more. We can't do that, but God can, and God does. He's just and the justifier. It's as if God's justice comes down and his love is displayed in the cross. They intersect right there at the cross. It's the greatest act of justice because sin is being punished on the cross, and it's the greatest act of love because Jesus is interceding for you and me on the cross. God is just and the justifier. Now, what does it mean to be justified? I love uh, an old college professor who said, it means God treats me justified, never sinned. Justified, never sinned. I'm justified. My record's been expunged. And it's, and, it's, and it's been cleared because of the blood of Christ. Peter writes, you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Lamb of God. Now, we got to know what the problem is before we can be saved from the problem. And, and if we know what the problem is, and we know that there's a solution to the problem, which is Jesus Christ, then we got to do something else. We need to appropriate that for ourselves. And that's our response, to appropriate what God has done through faith. We read earlier in Romans chapter 6 that we deserve death for sins. The wages of sin is death. But that verse goes on to say this. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. It's free. It's already been purchased by Jesus. He offers it to you free. Now, um, Christmas is the season for giving, but I would say February is also the season for giving. All the, um, all the exercise equipment you got for Christmas, kind of, it's time now to start giving it away, right? Because it's just now the Peloton, you know, the treadmill. Like, I'm really not using that after all. And so we call our neighbor, our son, Daughters say, hey, honey, do you want this? You know, it just, just isn't working for me. You know, we, we like to give gifts, but gifts, gifts must be received. Now, I've, I kind of have a reputation for being frugal. And my wife and I went to Mexico once on an anniversary trip, and I came to her all excited one day because I, I told her, I said, I met someone on the street, and he's offered us two free tickets to take a boat through the mangroves to go out into this kind of little, little area where we can go snorkeling on our, where there's a reef. 
and uh, it's going to be free. She goes, free? She goes, yeah, free. All we had to do is listen to this um, guy give a little presentation. This little presentation for timeshare and, and a new thing they're building. And, and so, uh, so we went ahead and, and we got on this, this bus that took us down to some scary area. It felt like we were getting kidnapped. Took us down the road about 20 minutes, pulled in this remote area. There's a big building that's being built for, as a resort. We walk in there and it's pretty barren except for some round tables and there's a guy waiting for us at a table. So we sit down. He begins to share uh, how this timeshare is going to work and how it's wonderful, how everyone needs vacation, how we've enjoyed this vacation. We would enjoy coming down every year. You know, they, they really bait you. Do you like Mexico? Yeah, we love it. Do, would you like to come here every year? Every year? Yes, I, I'd love to come here every year. We're going to make it happen. I said, no, I don't want you to make it happen. <laughs> I don't need to come here every year. I'd like to, but I don't need to. So we're saying no to all kinds of stuff. And after about a half hour, he says, hey, I, I want my boss to talk to you. He's, a, he's, he's got some special, special offers to present to you. So he comes in. Julie and I look at us and say, we got to get out of here. So he starts talking, getting real heavy, you know, really pushing us to purchase something. And we finally stood up and said, you know what? We need to leave. We're done. We've tried to tell you that. We are done. And, um, and we left. Now, we did get our free boat ride, which was pretty, pretty cool. But we paid a price, paid an emotion, kind of ruined our whole vacation. We felt so emotionally beat up. Not every gift is really free. There's strings attached. Now, I would say this. I, I also got a free gift this past week, showed up on my phone, on my, on my Chick-fil-A app. It said that uh, I, was, I got a free brownie. Yeah. So uh, my wife did too. So we pulled in a Chick-fil-A the other day to to get our free brownie, and guess what? It was free, totally free. We didn't have to buy coffee, drink, anything else. We just got the brownies. Like I said, I'm cheap. So, so we got it for free. Some things truly are free, but you know what? Even though it was totally free on my app, I had to go get it. I had to receive it. And even though Jesus died on the cross and offers this free gift, you have to receive it. It says in 1 John, excuse me, it says in John's Gospel, the first chapter, but to all who received him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You have to receive Jesus. You have to at some point in your life saying, Jesus, I do believe in you. I do believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I surrender my life to you. Come into my life. Take up residence in me. Be the Lord of my life. See, we have to get past this idea that I grew up with that's, that salvation is like a product. Like, like you get something in the mail that's free. Oh, cool. Okay, I'll put it up on a shelf. I don't know if I'll ever use it, but it's there. Like somehow salvation is a free thing. It's there. It's not meant to be like an object. It's a relationship. It's like a subscription in a sense. We have this thing that a church offers to everybody. In fact, it's offered to you. It's called Right Now Media. We've actually paid for a service that anyone in our church can access for free. It's like Christian Netflix. And you may say, uh, wow, free gift from my church. But you'll never enjoy the benefits if you don't interact with that subscription. You've got to go there. You've got to interact with it. You've got, to, you've got to download things or watch things. And the same thing in our relationship with God. It may be free to us, but it's meant to be engaged in. God invites us into a relationship where he is, God's our father. Jesus, Jesus is our savior. We interact with him. He becomes Lord of our lives. You know, to receive forgiveness, we must first admit we have a need. And then we must believe that Jesus satisfies that need. And I really believe that that you can probably categorize every person in one of two camps. Either we are a person who's trying to justify our sins before God. 
God, I'm not doing anything wrong. God, it's not that bad. God, everyone else is doing it. God, I think they interpreted the Bible wrong. That's not what it really meant. You know, we're trying to justify our sins or we're seeking to be justified from our sins. You're either justifying your sins or you're, be, or you're being justified from your sins. And which are you? Which are you? I've, I've traveled around the world on mission trips and been acquainted with a lot of these other religions of the world. And I'll tell you this, of all the places I've been and of all the different religions I've seen, one of the things that's so distinct about Christianity is this. The people who believe the message they teach have, a, have this exuberant joy when they worship. See, so many religions are dark and they're, and they're so serious and it's so guilt-ridden and heavy because we're trying to measure up to the God. We're trying to do what makes the God happy. We're trying to align our lives and be obedient and it's hard, but I'm going to do it because in the end it'll make me happy. But Christians who've been forgiven feel like this huge weight's been thrown off your back and you rise up and you go, God, it feels so good. God, it feels so great to be washed, to be cleansed, to be forgiven. Is that how you feel about Jesus? Because every time when we gather to worship, that's the feeling I have. That, that, that the God who I've disobeyed, the God who I've offended so many years of my life, never gave up on me, was willing to send his son to die in my place. How can I not be happy about that? How can I not give him praise? How can I not want to give my life and return back to him? That's the response. And that's the offer for you. You know, one of the the messages that, that just comes across so big in this um, first episode of The Chosen called The Shepherd is these, a shepherd was told, don't you ever come back here into town and don't bring to us any other sheep until you find that spotless lamb for the sacrifice. And so after the birth of Christ, this shepherd comes back into town and he's all excited telling everyone what they just experienced. The Messiah has come. The promise has been fulfilled. And this religious leader stops him and says, I told you never to come back here. I told you not to return until you found that lamb. Have you found the spotless lamb for sacrifice? And then the camera zeroes in on that shepherd's face. And he smiles. Yeah. You just know what he's saying in his head. I found it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the spotless lamb sacrificed for you and for me. If you never, ever received it, I want to ask you, this is the day. This is the day. Quit trying to play around with, with on, the, on the edges saying, oh, I'm going to think about this some more. I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. I'm trying to get my life in line with God. Surrender yourself to him. And so I'm going to ask you to stand. And as we sing this song, if today is a day where you say, Jesus, I'm done. I'm done trying to do it on my own. I want to surrender to you. I want to believe what was done for me in Jesus Christ. Then we want you to come down here. And we want to pray with you. We want to help you take your next steps. We want to even set up your baptism. But we're going to proclaim right now with great joy the gospel message in this song. And if you need prayer, we're going to be right down here waiting for you.